With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to our GSP Ace of the Day segment presented by DraftKings. Listeners, dare I say, we may have the big mo on our side. Hasn't been the greatest 2022 U.S. Open for this Ace of the Day segment from a picks perspective. I'm plenty happy with the content that we're putting out here at Cracked Rackets, but you look at our results through nine days of action. We're 10 and 16 overall down 2.57 units now. I'm well aware that's unacceptable. It's below the standards we hold ourselves to here at Cracked Rackets. It's my job at a minimum to get us back to even by the end of the year's final slam. And dare I say, we're on the path to doing that. We like to focus on the mini victories here at Cracked Rackets. And one of those miniature victories is the fact that we are now 4-1 and one over our past two days of picks on day number nine. Own Jabour does us a massive favor. Down 5-3 in that second set. She comes back, earns a 6-4-7-6 victory. Not only does she cover the straight set win wager we put on her yesterday, she covers the two and a half game spread as well with her victory over Tom Janovich. So shout out to you, Onjabur. Shout out to Arena Sabalenka. Again, some drama. She was down a set three all to Danielle Collins. Comes back, wins that match in a third set. Carlos Alcarez, Yannick Sinner, each delivering five set victories as well. Again, I've been hesitant to even bring up our overall record because 10 and 16 down 2.57 units is that unacceptable, but not the big mo, but the little mo. We've got a little momentum building down the home stretch of this year's final Grand Slam, and boy, do we need it. As I looked at Day 10's board of options available to us via our friends at the DraftKings Sportsbook, gonna have to go with your gut. Obviously, I want to point to some statistics that have me leaning certain directions here on today's podcast, make the case for my two aces of the day on day 10. But I mean, all four of your matchups just from a surface level perspective. And of course, I want to get into all four of these matchups on today's show. But on the women's side, Sabalenka Pliskva, two power tennis players who makes more first serves, right? It may sound simple, but it feels like that may ultimately be the deciding factor. Sviantek versus Pagula, two of the five most consistent players, arguably the two most consistent players on the WTA Tour this season. You feel like that match could get extraordinarily physical. Yes, you give all the mini check marks to Iga Sviantek in terms of advantages from a tactical perspective at the same time. Who's played better in this 2022 U.S. Open? Iga Sviantek or Jessica Pagula to this point? I think after her Kvitova victory, you probably have to say that the answer to that question is Pagula, but obviously want to get into both of those fascinating matchups. Talk about the tennis abstract singles forecast odds. Talk about the DraftKings Sportsbook odds on the men's side. I mean, (laughs) 
Rublev Tiafo is a pick right now. Minus 110 either way, according to DraftKings Sportsbook, and understandably so. One-to-one career head-to-head. Tiafo coming off of an electric four-set performance over Rafael Nadal. If he plays that well, he really can't win this 2022 U.S. Open, which of course will be won by a first-time champion. And now we have to factor that into our thinking on the men's side as well. A little extra nerves uh, probably in the brains of each of the eight remaining men's singles players, or I suppose six, going into day number 10, as all of them do have that opportunity to win a first major title. And they're not going to have to go through Rafa. They're not going to have to go through Djokovic. They're not going to have to go through defending champion Daniel Medvedev. Now, there are a ton of talented players left in the draw, but you definitely have to factor that in, whether you're looking at Tiafo Rublev or Tomorrow's match of all matches, Sinner Alcaraz, you know, part, what, three, I believe, in their rivalry, and... I mean, talk about the two most captivating young talents in the men's game. Yannick Sinner, 21 years old. Carlos Alcaraz, 19. Sinner becomes the youngest guy since Djokovic to have reached the quarterfinals of all four majors. Alcaraz, the youngest guy and only guy other than Andre Agassi to reach the U.S. Open quarterfinals twice as a teenager. Two special talents going head-to-head, both coming off of five-set dramatic late-night victories on day number eight. It's a night match on Arthur Ashe. They're giving these two prime time for a reason. In my opinion, it's the best young rivalry on the ATP Tour and maybe in our game across the board. How are you supposed to pick a winner when both of these guys have flashed elements of excellence? Obviously, Yannick Sinner's won his past two matchups against Carlos Alcaraz, but neither of those matchups have come on hard courts at the same time. If you're asking me who, through the totality of New York, has played better, the answer is probably Carlos Alcaraz. Man, is Wednesday going to be fun. And it's not as though I have the most flourishing social life right now, and that's going to make sense. It is my job to watch tennis 24-7 to be able to report what I see and keep all of you Cracked Rackets fans in the loop. Uh, That said, I've cleared my Wednesday night schedule. There will be no obligations. I will be watching Yannick Sinner versus Carlos Alcaraz from start to finish, something I don't get to do frequently enough because I'm trying to watch 30 matches a day, you know, minimum. And so as such, You're not able to spend as much time with every match as you would like, but I'm spending all of the time with this match because I think it has the possibility of being that good. That said, on this Ace of the Day segment, as always, my plan, run you through my two aces, give you my reasoning, talk about the matchups, talk about the statistics, then, of course, get into the rest of the day's board. I want to offer you some intriguing options via our friends at the DraftKings Sportsbook, who, by the way, we are so happy to have back as a part of our team here at Cracked Rackets. It means not only will we be doing aces of the day through these grand slams, it means we're going to do aces of the day segment throughout the course of the rest of this 2022 season, or at least the rest of this month, as long as our friends at DraftKings stick with us. And, you know, again, why is that so enjoyable for us? Because there's a lot of good tennis that happens across the board every day. And that means I'm going to get to preview not only the matches happening at the highest levels, but sometimes we'll dive into the challengers. Sometimes 
sometimes we'll dive into the ITFs. Right now, we're focused on the slam action because it is the final major of the year. But shout out to our friends at DraftKings for their support of this podcast. They understand the need to preview everything that happens in the tennis world. And uh, obviously, we appreciate their support. And the way you can support them is by testing your knowledge with our friends at DraftKings. You go to the DraftKings Sportsbook today, place a $1 bet, and use our promo code AOD. You're going to get $100 in free bets to use on DraftKings. That means, again, you can focus on, instead of the U.S. Open, the challenger action, some of the home stretch 2022 events coming up. Maybe you'll save up for a big wager on Paris. Whatever it may be, there are opportunities aplenty via our friends at DraftKings. Go there today. Use our promo code AOD. Bet $1. Get $100 in free bets. A shout out to our friends at DraftKings for their support of this show. With that said, healthy introduction. I'm feeling good here on day number 10. Again, four and one in our last two days. Please, tennis gods, you delivered us a gift. You know what's funny? You listeners aren't going to see this. I've assumed the prayer motion with my hands. You know, when you put them flat together and you look upwards towards whomever your God or gods may be. I've actually assumed that as I'm asking this to the tennis gods is this is a genuine request. Please deliver us the momentum we need. Obviously, you get to the big stuff first. Does anyone else do this in their prayers? I guess we're really going full circle here, but I mean, I'm not the biggest prayer guy. I will say I went to services on high holidays, which in my religion, Judaism, means Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Maybe you'll pop in for a Passover Seder with your family as well. And I still know my prayers. I can hang uh, in those circles. The point being, whenever I would fire up a prayer to my God, Adonai, whomever your God may be, I respect. Let's be clear. Um, But I would always say, look, get to the big stuff first, you know, world hunger, world peace. If you're dealing with that, you don't have time for me. I always get it. But, and then you throw in whatever requests you may have. Um, That is my request to the tennis gods. I know you got some serious stuff to deal with right now, but if you also don't mind blessing us with just a little bit of momentum down the home stretch, it would be very much appreciated. With that said, um, Again, I do want to look at day 10's matches. We've got four singles quarterfinal matches at the 2022 U.S. Open. Let's get into it. Here are my aces of the day. Ace number one, a straight money line wager. We're going to go with Arena Sabalenka once again. And look, there is always going to be a degree of drama associated with any Arena Sabalenka tennis match. It's what makes her, in my opinion, the most compelling and captivating watch right now in all of tennis, whether it be men's tennis, women's tennis, just because you never know what's going to happen in a Sabalenka match. And I've said this before when describing her game. Every match you watch her play, there's going to be five minutes where you know, the double faults pile up. And I've mentioned this before, the gap between her and her 300 plus double faults coming into this 2022 U.S. Open, the gap between her and second place Coco Golf, who has a little over 200 double faults, as is big as the gap, is as big as the gap, that's English there, is as big as the gap between Golf and the 24th ranked player in double faults this season. That's how many more free points Arena Sablanka has given away than her competition this year. And yet, you know, for every five minutes of the double faults piling up, of the immediate early errors, the slaps in the net, the total dejection in her body language, there are 10 minutes where you just think to yourself, 
oh my God, Arena Sabalenka could be the best player in the world. If it all clicks, she can just do a totality of more things than just about any player in the women's game. And that includes Iga Svantec. That includes the countless captivating young talents we have because her combination of power, speed, willingness, and ability moving forward and then, dare I say, borderline, I don't give a f- attitude. It's just the totality of things you need to succeed at the highest level. And getting all of those things to click at the same time, that has been the proverbial struggle for Sabalenka throughout the course of her career. Of course, there have been countless ups and downs, including this season, where she was awful to start the year, whether it be on serve, you know, against Pedersen, Yvonne, and the two lead-ups to the Australian Open. The fact that she even made the fourth round of that Australian Open felt like a a massive swindle for by her. And then, you know, first round losses to Paulini, Bagu, in Indian Wells, Miami, respectively, where the double faults began to pile up. Since the turning of the calendar to the clay courts, though, yes, the double faulting has stayed persistent, but she's put together a good stretch of results, whether it be finaling Stuttgart before losing to Sviantec, whether it be, you know, finaling in the Netherlands on the grass courts before getting knocked out by Ekaterina Alexandrova. Semi-finals for her uh, in a three-set loss to Caroline Garcia in Cincinnati, but she was really the only player who played Garcia that tight throughout the course of the week. You know, the three-set loss in Toronto to Coco Goff, she loses that match 7-6 in the third. If you watch that match, she had a million opportunities to go up a definitive break and consolidate the break, and she just wasn't able to do it because the double faults persisted. But while she has double faulted at times in big moments, especially against Danielle Collins in her three-all service game uh, in their second set last night in her round four victory, she's overcome that adversity at so many times this season. And whether it was at this U.S. Open, down 6-2-5-1 to Kai Kanepi in the second round, she wins that match in three sets again yesterday. 6-3, 3-all. She had like seven breakpoint chances that she failed to convert. Collins holds four, 3-all in the second set. Sabalenka then goes down a couple of breakpoint chances. They play a 25-minute changeover, the two service games of each player, 25 total minutes. Sabalenka holds for 4-3. Sabalenka goes on to win eight of the next 10 games and close out the match in straight sets. And listening to Sabalenka in her post-match press conference, and shout out to Courtney Nguyen of the WTA who asked Sabalenka, who has lost her last two matches against her opponent tomorrow, Carolina Pliskova, the number 22 seed. Courtney asked, because Sabalenka is now 2-2 two and two overall against Pliskova in their careers. And Pliskova won the first two, you know, uh, excuse me, Sabalenka won the first two. Pliskova beats her at Wimbledon, beats her in Cincinnati, I think, last year and has won the last two. Uh, Courtney asked, what changed in the matchup? What was different in rounds, in, in those second affairs than, than the first? Why has she been a tougher opponent? And Sabalenka said, because I let her get in my head, because I didn't think I needed to respect Pliskova after my early career success against her. And anytime she would slap a winner, as Karolina Pliskova will do from time to time, Sabalenka just it confounded her. She was like, how is she doing this? This doesn't make sense to me. She shouldn't be this good. And Sabalenka says, I'm now more prepared. I understand that is Karolina Pliskova's game. I understand I have to be ready for the pace at which she plays and the fact that if I can be the steadier of the two players tomorrow, I will have more opportunities for myself, which is obviously not a perspective Sabalenka typically has. 
I just like the way she's approached these last two matches. I like the way she's problem-solved against Collins, against Kanepi, the fact that she is returning so aggressively. And more than anything else, at 24 years old, Sabalenka is moving better than ever. I mean, for someone with her degree of power that she's able to play with to be able to move the way that she is as well— it's extraordinarily impressive. And so, again, you look for Arena Sabalenka, who overall this season, you know, the first or the double fault percentage has killed her from a hold percentage perspective. And yet, her first serve has gotten better when she lands the second serve. She's more aggressive with it. It has gotten better when it does, you know, go in the court and is clicking, as it has at this U.S. Open. From a return perspective, Sabalenka, top 25 returner actually this season. Now she ranks 23rd with her 36.5 break percentage, but you know that's a fourth consecutive year of improvement for Arena Sabalenka. And with her ability to play elite tennis behind her first serve with a combination of aggression and consistent aggression she brings as a returner. And again, I think she's not as consistent from a serving perspective as Elena Rabakina right now. But I think she can be just as good of a server as Rabakina. And from a metrics perspective, and honestly, eye test perspective, I think Sabalenka is a better returner. And I just think Sabalenka is a is a dynamic player who can do so many different things. It's just about putting the pieces together. And I think competitively, she has really well at this 2022 U.S. Open. Again, she's hitting the forehand extraordinarily well. She spreads the court so well with how she changes direction when she's in the center of the court. That inside-out forehand is absolutely massive. She's totally comfortable blitzing a backhand both down the line and cross-court. I just think she has the weapons to make life miserable for Karolina Pliskova tomorrow. And Pliskova has been so good over the course of her last two matches. Three set wins over Bencic and Azarenka, respectively. Uh, you look for her yesterday against Azarenka. Azarenka just kind of didn't have the legs to hang with Karolina Pliskova. And I do think from an eye test perspective, Pliskova has played better than Arena Sabalenka thus far in terms of totality of the event. But with all due respect to Vika, who can crush the first serve, Benchic, who can get after the first ball, I just think the totality of power coming at Pliskova in this next match is unlike what she's seen so far in this event. And I think against Azarenka, the match felt on Pliskova's terms. Against Benchic, sets number two, three, the match felt on Pliskova's terms. With all due respect to Karolina Pliskova, who again is playing excellent plus one tennis and, you know, semifinal Toronto now, you know, uh, is clearly back into her best form after a really shaky start to the season. I just, it's impossible to play your best tennis against Arena Sabalenka because of everything going on across the net. You're just going to inevitably end up playing on Sabalenka's terms because she's going to connect on a couple of massive first serves. She's going to hit these scoop plus one forehand on the rise, down the line winners where you're just like, how the hell did you make that shot? She just kind of shrugs or lets out a big come on. And Again, for Pliskova, she's been really good these last two rounds. I wonder if they may have added up on her, though. It's been a lot of tennis, a lot of physical tennis as well. Now, again, against Arena Sabalenka, you're never going to play the longest points, but I'm leaning Sabalenka in this match. I think she's definitely had the better season. Of course, again, injury has to do with that due to Pliskova uh, uh, missing so much of the start of the year. You know, Pliskova makes the Toronto semifinals. 
Sabalenka makes the Cincinnati semifinals, so I actually think they both came into this U.S. Open in relatively equal form and confidence. The big number for me, you look for Arena Sabalenka, who again is 28-17 and 17 overall in the year. For what it's worth, Karolina Pliskova so far this season, uh, currently 19-14. and 14. You look for Karolina Pliskova, she's holding serve 70.4% of the time. That's 0.6% better than Sabalenka, but Sabalenka breaking serve 36.5% of the time is five, uh, 4, no, 5.3% better than Karolina Pliskova. Total points won. Pliskova winning 50.3% of her points. Sabalenka 51.3%. So from a metrics perspective, Sabalenka has been the better player this season. Eye test perspective, Pliskova's probably been the slightly better player this year. Of course, you look at the WTA points rate uh, at this tournament, excuse me, points race-wise, Sabalenka currently sitting at eighth. Pliskova with her run, actually up to a respectable 26th, which again, given how slow the start was for her this season, that's a pretty good fight from the 30-year-old to just keep herself in the hunt and give herself a chance to end the year top 20. Two and two career head-to-head. You look at the matchups, uh, again, Pliskova, three-set win at Wimbledon last year, straight-set win in Montreal, Sabalenka, straight-set wins, uh, three-set wins, excuse me, in Cincinnati and Eastbourne back in 2018. I do think from an, uh, you know, a value perspective, maybe the over is the best play. Over two and a half sets plus 120, there's value there. Over 20 and a half games, which if they play a 7-6 first set, and I think they very well could. You look overall, again, in their four matchups, they've actually only played one tiebreaker, but they've had four, uh, excuse me, five of their, six of their sets go 6-4 or deeper. I think the over is a good number. Uh, you know, 20 and a half games, and it's a four and five or, you know, a three-set match. Over 20 and a half games, minus 150, you want to give the extra game over minus uh, 21 and a half, which means you really need a tiebreaker set. Minus 120, I think, is also not the worst play. You know, some of the fun props over half a tiebreak. So if there is a 7-6 set plus 200, that's not the worst value to gobble up. I think you could take Sabalenka to win two sets to none at plus 135. You could also hedge and take her to win two sets to one at plus 320 if you want to get specific with it. Pliskova to win two sets to one. And why I think you take Pliskova's two sets to one and never two sets to love is you look for Arena Sabalenka at the slams over the course of the past few seasons. You know, again, Camilla Georgie beats her in three sets at Roland Garros. Kaya Kanepi, three sets Australian Open. Leila Fernandez, three sets US Open. Pliskova, three sets Wimbledon. Pavlichenkova, three sets Roland Garros. Serena Williams, three sets Australian Open. Own Jabour, three sets Roland Garros. Her last seven losses at the slams have all been in three sets. I don't think Pliskova, uh, yes, Pliskova is serving well, but Sabalenka is playing well enough that this match at a minimum in a Pliskova win is going three. So if you're going to back Pliskova, the number I would turn to is, again, Pliskova to win two sets to one plus 370. You can bet that straight up with our friends at DraftKings, and I may just hedge the ace of the day I have here by doing exactly that. I'm going to ride the Sabalenka money line, though. Minus 135 over Pliskova tomorrow. Now, if Sabalenka wins that first set, maybe I'll hedge and throw a little live money on a super dog in Carolina Pliskova at that point. But 
I'm just feeling the Sabalenka momentum. The two come from behind victories already this tournament. The fact that Pliskova's had to play two really physical three-set matches in her last two matches just to get to this quarterfinal. I think the Sabalenka serve is the single biggest weapon Pliskova has faced thus far. I think Sabalenka's got the sort of weapons that even though Pliskova is moving better, those weapons are still so big that Pliskova's lack of elite movement will continue to be a problem. I think backhand to backhand, Sabalenka can play her even forehand to forehand. The heaviness of that Sabalenka ball may end up giving Pliskova some trouble. Again, I think this match is close. I just think Sabalenka can do more things, and I like the matchup here for her. Give me Sabalenka minus 135, the money line bet to knock out Karolina Pliskova tomorrow. Sabalenka, by the way, up to minus 140 as of me recording this podcast, so better hop on that as soon as possible. Always got to like when the Sharks are moving in your direction. For what it's worth, Karolina Pliskova, 50.3% favorite according to the Tennis Abstract Singles forecast. They think it's a pick em. I think it's a pick em. Perhaps in that case, again, you take the over 20.5, over 21.5 games, over 2.5 sets. But for our ace, Arena Sabalenka delivered us the goods once. Let's hope she delivers us the goods once again. We're going to take Sabalenka to advance uh, over Karolina Pliskova into another U.S. Open semifinals. Again, minus 135 money line, 1.35 units to win one in return. That was far too long on that match, but again, all of these matches are so fascinating. I could spend 20 minutes on each of them. Next, I'll go to our second ace of the day. I'm taking Iga to knock out Jessica Pagula tomorrow. Now, Pagula has been as consistent as any player not named Iga on the WTA Tour this season. You look for Jessica Pagula by reaching the quarterfinals here at the 2022 U.S. Open. Jessica Pagula now eight, uh, excuse me, seventh total quarterfinal of this 2022 season, but it's her third quarterfinal at the majors this year. Quartered in Australia, losing to the eventual champ, Ashley Barty. Quartered at Roland Garros, lost to the eventual champ, Iga Sviantek. Now quarterfinals here uh, as she's going to take on Iga once again. Of course, for what it's worth, Pagula's other quarterfinals, Cincinnati, Toronto, Madrid, Miami. Four of the biggest non-major events of the season. She's in the quarterfinals of all of them. Now, she's 3-3 three and three in quarterfinals this year. And again, the three matches she lost, she loses to Barty, Sviantek, who are the eventual slam champions. She also lost to Garcia in Cincinnati. Garcia, for what it's worth, goes on to win that Cincinnati title. Now, there's only one final for Jess Pagula this season, and it was a loss in Madrid to Own Jabur. Uh, you know, for what it's worth, she lost to the eventual champions in Toronto and Miami as well. Iga got her in Miami. Halep got her in Toronto. So in each of the six, that's a fascinating stat, and I'm going to have to tweet that out. In each of the six prior quarterfinals that uh, Jessica Pagula made this season, she lost to the eventual champion of the event. It's a tough script for Jessica Pagula, and certainly if she wants to be the number one player in the world, which, by the way, is a hell of a standard to hold someone to. Uh, yeah, she's got to win more of those matches. But there's no doubt it's been a career year for Jessica Pagula, who, again, is competing in her seventh quarter final. You look at where those matches have happened. You look for her overall now in this 2022 season, 35-16, and 16, a 69% win percentage. She's top three in the points race right now, currently sitting at third. And 
a comfortable margin now between her and eighth place Veronica Kudermetova, and that number may shift depending on how this U.S. Open ends. But either way, Jessica Pagula is looking like she is going to qualify for the year-end finals in Fort Worth, Texas. Some news we learned today, sneaking that announcement here into this Ace of the Day preview. That said, again, you look for Jessica Pagula this season. She's had some difficulties against the top players in the world. Five and eight against the top 20, two and seven against the top 10. Of course, two of those losses have come to Iga Sviantek, who beat her two and five in Miami, three and two at Roland Garros. Iga had a lot of success on the return of serve in those matches, in particular six breaks of serve against Pagula in Miami this season. She broke her, I think, six more times, excuse me, in their matchup at Roland Garros. Again, and I alluded to this in the intro, if you're checking off each category for each player, you probably give slight edges to Iga Sviantek in every category. Certainly, if you look at the statistics for Iga, they're just a little bit better than Jessica Gula. Obviously, Iga top 10 in both hold and break percentage this season. She's one of two players you say that about. She's holding 75.5% of the time. Pagula holding a career-high 72.5% of the time, which is a top 20 number for her. That said, again, Iga even better on that serve. And break-wise, Jessica Pagula, who was number two in break percentage on the 2021 season, you know, she is an elite returner. She breaks serve over 37% of the time. Iga Sviantek breaks serve over 50% of the time. Iga is maybe the best returner we've seen in a general, you know, along the lines of a Simona Halep, one of those generational returning talents we see emerge on the WTA Tour. Again, forehand. Both of their forehands are susceptible to spraying. Pagula hits the forehand a little bit flatter. Sviantek obviously a little bit heavier. The Sviantek backswing a little bit more complicated, but she can also do more things with her forehand. I think her inside-out ball is definitely heavier, a little bit more effective, creates more angle. Both of them hit the inside in well. Sviantek hits the cross court with more angle. Pagula probably a little bit more depth, but slightest of edges to Iga Sviantek on that forehand. And as good as the Jessica Pagula backhand is, no one gets the edge on backhands over Iga Sviantek. You know, movement-wise, Pagula is a very good mover now, but so is Iga. So no definitive advantage there. Pagula's a good volleyer. So is Iga. You might give the slightest of edges on net play to Jessica Pagula, but again, only the slightest. I love how willing Iga is to hit that overhead. Although I would say Pagula is definitely better at that overhead. And again, I think that's probably her most impressive feature moving forward for Pagula is how confident she is putting that ball away. That said, from a baseline perspective, I just think Iga can do more things. And looking for both of these players, Pagula's dropped just one set, wins over Golubic, Sasnovic, Yuan, and Kvitova thus far. For Sviantek, dropped just the one set last round against Nehemiah, wins over Davis, Stevens, Paulini. Neither has had the toughest tests to this point of the event. Certainly Pagula advanced comfortably against Petra Kvitova. That said, Kvitova played poorly. She was spraying from the start. You could tell physically she just didn't quite have her legs under her after that Garbine Muguruza three-set thriller. That said, you can't fault Pagula for beating the opponent she was supposed to beat, and that's a big confidence-boosting win for Jess Pagula, again, given some of her struggles against top 20 opponents this season. Iga hasn't played great. The serve has sprayed on her. 
the forehand has sprayed on her in particular. It feels like she's not comfortable swinging through that ball 100% even at this stage of the event. That said, it's the problem solving for Iga. The fact that Nehemiah's power did give her some issues and she was spraying to start set number one and was down a set and a break only to start taking the return of serve on the rise and just imposing herself more fit with her physicality, working Nehemiah into the outer thirds of the court. I just feel like her relentlessness ultimately is what uh, the totality of things she can do combined with that relentlessness just wears Jessica Pagula down. I think this match could be tight. This is another match where if you want to take the over two and a half sets, I can't can't blame you at plus 120 odds if you want to take the over 19 and a half games at minus 115 no shame in that wager at all you know if you think Shviantek's going to win in straights you want to get her odds boosted you can take her to cover a one and a half set spread at minus 105 if you think Shviantek is going to win in straights you can take her to win two sets to love minus 115 if you think the match is going to be tight Bet this both ways. Take Iga to win two sets to one. Take Pagula to win two sets to one. Both of them plus 310 bets. I mean, those are enticing odds. If you think the match is going the distance, if you think Pagula is just such a nightmare matchup physicality that she's just going to linger and that Iga is not playing well enough to definitively put her away, yeah, take the two plus odd bets. Kick your feet up. Pray that the match goes three sets and try to enjoy yourself. I think Iga ultimately wins this. I mean, again, two straight set victories for her already this season. I made the case from a matchup perspective. I think the heaviness of the Sviantec forehand uh, will force the Pagula forehand to spray, I think, Again, that topspin getting into the body of Pagula with how she hits the forehand will cause the errors to emerge. And then again, as good as Pagula is on that backhand wing, Sviantec's backhand is elite. It's what makes her freaking Iga. I'm going to take Iga to win. If she does win, even if in three sets, I think she's still going to cover a two-and-a-half game spread. I just don't see a world, I'm knocking on wood, where Iga loses another lopsided set, you know, a 6-2 or a 6-1 set. I think she's going to keep things close no matter what, particularly given Pagula's game style. I think Iga ultimately pulls away. I'll take her to cover the minus two-and-a-half games. Now, we're laying a little juice at minus 150, but we'll throw the full 1.5 units on it to win one in return. Those are my two aces of the day. Now, you look at the rest of the board on day number 10. Again, really, really tricky on the men's side. I have no freaking clue what to do with Andre Rublev versus Francis Tiafo, or really any clue on what to do with Alcaraz Sinner. You look, by the way, Iga Sviantek, a 75.8% favorite according to the Tennis Abstract. Singles forecast, she's also a minus 215 money line favorite. I mean, there's a reason Rublev Tiafo tomorrow minus 110 apiece. You look at the tennis abstract singles forecast. Interestingly, they have Andre Rublev as a 68% favorite, but how can you say that definitively, given the fact that we saw Tiafo beat Rublev at this event last year in what was a fantastic five-set match between the two? I mean, we talked about this on the mini break today in recapping Tiafo's victory over Rafael Nadal, but... Tiafo's just taken things to another level as a server. 
and the aggression with which he played against Diego Schwartzman. He was, you know, won over 70% of his net points on over 40 attempts, just moving forward and putting the onus on Schwartzman to come up with something special. He did the exact same thing against Rafa in the round of 16, just relentless with his aggression, taking his backhand return on the rise with ease just to take time away from his opponents. It's what you need to do against Andre Rublev. You can't let Rublev just create freely from the center of the court because Rublev does that too well. And we saw that yesterday against Cam Norrie where Rublev was flawless in a straight set victory. And Norrie didn't play great, but again, everything was on Rublev's terms. The passing shot he hits to clinch the break in the third set, 4-5-4 on the run, backhand, short angle, cross court. That's when you know Rublev's feeling himself is when he's making that ball and again, Andre played great in a five-set win over Denis Shapovalov, where he faced some adversity. Served for the matchup 5-4 in the fifth, got broken. Shapovalov holds for 6-5. Andre recovers, wins that match in a fifth-set breaker. Andre's playing confidently. Andre's playing well. And I think this is the first time in a while you can say that about Andre Rublev. Yeah, he was great. Marseille, you know, it was either Dubai or Doha earlier this season in semifinals, Indian Wells. Yes, he won a 250 title in Belgrade, but there was, and yes, he beat Djokovic in that final, but there was really not a definitive run for Andre Rublev at one of the major events during the course of, you know, the time between the Australian Open and the start of this U.S. Open. Well, now this U.S. Open has the framework of a signature run for Rublev, and again, his serve, his, uh, really his first forehand his first serve, he's been hovering under 60%, under 55% as well. Not that Tiafo served great yesterday. He was around 50%, but you wouldn't give the definitive first serve advantage to either guy because I do think Tiafo's hitting his first serve that well. Now, the consistency of the Andre Rublev first forehand, the relentlessness with which Andre Rublev brings that plus one aggression, I mean, that's the most that's the single play you're most confident in, certainly in the matchup, in my opinion, that Rublev will be able to execute that play with success at some point during the course of the match. But man, Tiafo puts pressure on him. Tiafo's going to be comfortable, you know, taking his backhand off the line and not allowing Rublev to camp out in that ad side corner. Tiafo will move forward to the net behind plus one balls, behind slices, and just force Rublev to hit from uncomfortable positions on the court, not allow him to play free offense. And he'll have the crowd behind him. And after beating Rafael Nadal, and as captivating, energetic, positive as Francis Tiafo is, this crowd's going to want to get behind Francis Tiafo. They ha- they always have, they always will. I mean again, yes, Rublev beat Tiafo at Indian Wells, but those are slightly slower courts. I think the faster courts play to Tiafo's advantage because they maximize his serve and, you know, again, they make his plus one forehand that effective plus his speed transcends court speed. Not that Rublev's movement is an issue anymore for the Russian. I take the over in this match more than anything else. You know, again, over uh, 39 and a half games, minus 130. You can get over 10 and a half games in the first set, meaning it's 7-5 or 7-6, plus 150. I think either guy is going to win, you know, in four sets. If you bet the four set total 
in the match, plus 160, five set total, plus 265. If you don't think either guy is capable of winning in straight sets, and I don't, I would bet those two bets, again, the four set total, the five set total, both plus odds, and pray that the first two sets go in different directions. You know, Sinner, uh, uh, excuse me, Tiafa to win the first set, minus 110. He comes out energetic. He has the crowd behind him. He frustrates Rublev early, you know, and carries that to a first set victory. Minus 110. I like that bet. Both of them to win three sets to one is plus 400. I like those bets. You can honestly bet them to both win three sets to two as well at plus 600. And again, as long as the match doesn't go straight, you pretty much have your bets covered. I like this matchup. As a tennis fan, first and foremost, the athleticism, the shot making, the power, the difference that we're going to, you know, the different ways Francis Tiafo is going to have to counterpunch against Andre Rublev, point in, point out. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And as such, I'm staying away from this match from an ace of the day perspective. I'm not certain who's going to win it. Again, from a money line perspective, it's minus 110 apiece. Rublev, a 68% favorite. I would lean Rublev in four sets. But I really don't feel good about it whatsoever. I just think it's so hard to follow up a victory after you beat a Nadal or a Djokovic, especially at these slams. That's why we've seen so few of these guys do it and then follow it up with major success or do it at all, period. I know it wasn't a vintage Rafa that Tiafo ended up beating, and I know he's the sort of guy who, again, from an emotional perspective, he will bounce back. He will be energized. He will have the crowd engaged and cheering him on. I'm taking the over, but I'll lean Rublev ever so slightly in that match. And then the match of matches, Carlito versus Sinner. Carlos Alcaraz, 58.1% favorite to knock out Yannick Sinner. Sinner, uh, a plus 145 underdog. Alcaraz, minus 185 money line tomorrow. I mean, this match is a pick'em's pick'em. And you look between these two players, Sinner now 42-11 and 11 overall on the year. He's 38-3 and three against opponents ranked outside the top 20 and, you know, against top 20 opponents here this season. He has earned some better wins over Alcaraz a couple times. Rublev, Carreño Busta. I mean, that said, as good as Yannick Sinner has been, Carlos Alcaraz has even been the next level. Alcaraz, a ridiculous 48-9 and nine overall this season. He's winning 84% of his matches. Nine losses. Nine total losses this year. Of course, he won Madrid, won Barcelona, won Miami, won Rio, four titles to Sinners one. Of course, the counter is that Sinners beat him the last two times they played, whether it was in the Wimbledon fourth round where Sinner earned a four-set victory, whether it was in Umag where Sinner comes from a set down to earn a 6-7, 6-1, 6-1 victory over Alcaraz. This matchup is just so delightful because they're two guys who just get after it every single point. There's not an ounce of quit in either of these two young stars. And, you know, again, respectfully, I don't think the numbers are going to tell us that much. Sinner holding 84.5% of the time. That's a top 20 number. He's breaking 25.5% of the time. That's a top 20 number. Carlos Alcaraz holding serve 85.1% of the time. That's a top 20. 15 number breaking serve 30.2% of the time. That is also a top 15 number. Overall record-wise, title-wise, statistic-wise, Alcaraz has been a little bit better than Yannick Sinner. On the flip side, Yannick Sinner, 2-0 against Carlos Alcaraz in their last two matches, which have both come in the last two months. That's 
makes up for the slight edge you might anecdotally offer to Carlos Alcaraz, both of them five-set thrillers on night number eight of the 2022 U.S. Open. For Sinner, he played three really good sets, three and a half really good sets against Ilya Ivashka, minus one difficult, uh, certainly, back half of set number two and set number four. He looked a little bit aimless, and the first serve was rough for him all night long. That said, I mean, physically, Sinner's just on another level now. He has gained another half step of speed. He's so fluid in and out of his corners now, and just the pace he's able able to generate, the depth he's able to generate. If he gets his hands on a ball, you're in trouble. And just, again, the relentlessness of his aggression from the baseline, the fact that he has gotten so much comfortable moving forward, finishing points at the net, serving and volleying if his opponents are going to cede all of this space in their return positioning. Sinner's got all the chess moves, and he's no longer the robotic swing big from the baseline, hope that works, player that he was at age 18, 19. There's now a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, and for Yannick Sinner, he's now reached the quarterfinals of all four majors, youngest side to do it since Novak Djokovic. On the flip side, you've got a Carlos Alcaraz, who you would say all of those exact same things about. And watching Yannick Sinner track, excuse me, Carlos Alcaraz track down some of the forehands he did against Marin Cilic on night number eight, your jaw dropped. It was just mesmerizing, the athleticism of Carlos Alcaraz. I'm convinced he could be in any position on the court, and you can't convince me there's not at least a 2% chance he can track down the ball that you hit. No matter where he is, no matter what the shot you're hitting is, no matter what the positioning is, Carlos Alcaraz is that sort of freak. And you might feel more confident in terms of a plan A that the serve, the plus one forehand, the way Alcaraz goes inside out, inside out, and then that third ball, either inside in or drop shot. It's the single most effective combination that either of the two guys bring to the court. Similarly, as as impressive as Sinner has become as an athlete, you probably, given all the injury issues he's dealt with it this season and coming off of a five-set match, give the slight physical edge to Carlos Alcaraz. That said, from a matchup perspective, Sinner hits with the sort of pace, depth, and heaviness on his ball that it just gives Carlos Alcaraz troubles on this surface because, again, his forehand backswing is a little bit bigger. He wants to take a big cut at that ball, and it's just hard to take a big cut at any ball Yannick Sinner hits at you. Similarly, if Alcaraz is going to sit 12 feet behind the baseline on the return of serve as he did last night against Chilich, Sinner's going to start working in the serving and volleying as well. Sinner's going to turn big on his plus one forehand because he is plenty fine creating from the center of the court. And then backhand to backhand, you take Sinner's back backhand over Alcaraz is, yeah, Alcaraz hits the slice better, but the depth Sinner's able to generate, his ability to pull that ball more consistently down the line, his ability to hit through you cross-court as well. I mean, as we saw in the clay courts of Umag, the relentlessness of the depth of Yannick Sinner's ball, it just, and, and Alcaraz didn't play particularly well in Umag, but it just kind of broke Alcaraz down. Alcaraz was spraying a bit, and I do think for Carlos Alcaraz, as athletic as he is, he still needs to work on plan B, plan C, plan D when the serve and plus one forehand aren't working. And plan B right now is, okay, it's not working. I'm relying on my physicality. I don't know if that's enough against this version of Yannick Sinner. And so, again, more than anything, 
I'm staying away from this match. I'm maybe hitting the over. You know, you want to take this match four total sets plus 165, five total sets plus 275. I probably like those best. Over seven and a half breaks, minus 145 is interesting to me because of how proficient both guys are as returners. Sinner to come out hot and win the first set, plus 125. That's an interesting single set bet I have my eye on. If you like the matchup perspective from Sinner, minus one and a half sets, plus 215. He's just got to win in four or better. Not the worst odds there, but as I alluded to at the start of this show, I'm kicking up my feet. I'm sitting back. I'm enjoying the hell out of this quarterfinal match. And again, the winner of that Sinner-Alcaraz match will be favored over the Rublev-Tiafa winner. So mm, pressure-wise, does that get in their head? I look forward to seeing, as I'm sure you all do as well. I'll take Sinner in five, but I don't feel good about predicting that match either way. That said, that'll do it. That's your preview of day 10 of the 2022 U.S. Open. Of course, we will be back to recap it all on the mini break podcast feed tomorrow where we've recapped every day of the year's final slam. So if you've missed out on any of the action, be sure to head over there. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at DraftKings. Use that promo code AOD bet $1 and get $100 in free bets. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and from all of us here at both Craft Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. May the odds be ever in your favor, and enjoy day 10 in New York. 